Book Two, Chapter Seven of Gloriana or the Revolution of Nineteen Hundred by Lady Florence Dixie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Gloriana or the Revolution of Nineteen Hundred. Book Two, Chapter Seven. Downing Street is awake betimes, and within the precincts of the residence of the first Lord of the Treasury an unusual stir and signs of an unwanted anxiety are perceivable. Seated around a long oblong table, in a singularly doleful-looking room, are a baker's dozen of gentlemen, apparently in eager discussion. Perplexity and anxiety is on every face, not unmixed in some cases with vacuity. A stranger, dropped from the clouds, and unaccustomed to the ways and manners and customs of our planet, might innocently inquire who these disturbed-looking personages are, and what their business. He would be told in reply that the personages are nothing more nor less than the sovereign of Great Britain's ministers, their business the holding of a cabinet council. But at such an hour, nine o'clock in the morning! Why, in the ordinary course of affairs, poor old Lord Muddlehead, the Secretary of State for the Colonies, would be adjusting his nightcap and turning over for his second sleep in bed, and that excellent non-entity, Lord Do-Nothing, Lord President of the Council and Privy Seal, would be sweetly dreaming of rest and peace, well-merited and well-earned, after the arduous and fatiguing duties attaching to his noble office. However, a matter of importance has shaken sleep from their eyes, as they have been summoned post-haste to attend their chief on urgent public business. The chief in question, the first Lord of the Treasury, the Prime Minister of Great Britain and Ireland, is the Duke of Devonsmere, a tall, aristocratic-looking man, with thick moustaches, whiskers and beard, in which the grey hairs of advancing age are rapidly gathering. He has thick lips, a not very pleasant eye, and a forehead chiefly remarkable for the crease or wrinkle, which, starting from the centre, runs down perpendicularly to meet the nose. He has a voice far from genial and, in fact, his manner all round is cold and haughty and unwinning. The Duke is a good speaker. That is his chief forte. He has not particularly distinguished himself through life as a great politician, though he has held high posts in various ministries. He has been secretary for war in a former ministry, but seceded from his chief when this latter brought in his Irish Home Rule Bill. No one has ever been able to accuse the Duke of Devonsmere of attempting to aggrandize himself. In politics he has been strictly honest according to his lights, though many believe that in the old days of conservatives and liberals he would have graced more appropriately the ranks of the former, which as a unionist he eventually joined. However, those days are past. There are no liberals or conservatives or unionists now. The former having adopted the progressist title the two latter becoming merged in the National Party, of which party the Duke of Devonsmere is the head. The position which he holds at this moment is an awkward one. His is only a provisional ministry, held together by the temporary support of the Progressist Party, the natural and avowed enemy of the Nationals. But the hatred of the Progressist for the Destrangeites is so intense that for a time their minor enmity with the Nationals is merged and forgotten in this new and greater one. It is, therefore, with such assistance as this, that the Duke, with a cabinet chiefly distinguished for its dullness and want of perspicacity, 
is endeavouring to cope with the extraordinary state of affairs that has arisen on the defeat of Hector de Strange's policy, and the revolution which has resulted from the events following upon that defeat. Gloria de Lara is at large, although warrants have been issued for her arrest as well as that of Lady Flora Desmond, no traces of either have yet been discovered. Of course the officials of Scotland Yard surrounded Montagree House, and demanded admission soon after the former's rescue. But when at length the great front door was thrown open for the admittance of the officers of the law, they were received only by Lord Bernard Fontenoy, who smilingly regretted that he could afford them no information or assist their search in any way. All he knew was that his brother had left him in charge of Montagree House during his unavoidable absence. Clearly there was very little to be extracted from the youthful lord. The Home Department Minister is speaking now, but apparently affording but cold comfort to his colleagues. Mr. Mayhew belongs to the English Bar. He is an excellent speaker, but that is all. It would have been better if he had stuck to his profession exclusively and left politics alone, for he has not shown in them. He is a weak man and an obstinate one and can never be got to acknowledge having committed a mistake. He has held office before in a conservative ministry in the same department, which did not profit much by his supervision, or attain any particular distinction for efficiency. He is the best man, however, that the Nationals have at their command for the post, which is not saying much for the existing state of things. Detectives are at work in nearly every great centre, and the police are fully instructed how to act he assures his colleagues. Don't you think, Mayhew, that Hector de Strange, or, as I suppose we must call her now, Gloria de Lara, has many secret friends in the force? There is no doubt she has the mass of working classes of the country on her side, certainly nearly every woman against them. Depend upon it, your detectives will not trace her, and it seems to me you are all of you vastly underrating her power. The speaker is a man of about fifty years of age, with a fine forehead, rather scant hair, prominent intelligent eyes, a sallow complexion, and somewhat of the middle height. He looks younger than he really is, and it is probably his long thick moustache that gives him a little of the military appearance. But Lord Pandolf Chertsey is no soldier. He is every inch a politician, living for nothing else but politics. While we can pass over the remainder of the Devonsmere cabinet without notice, because of the extreme mediocrity of talent displayed therein, a glance at the character of Lord Pandolf Chertsey is necessary. The extraordinary point which first strikes one is, why is not Lord Pandolf Prime Minister? Clearly, amongst all those thirteen gentlemen, he is the only one possessing a large grasp of thought, or a power to look at events and regard them as they are. Few men have been more abused than Lord Pandolf. And yet he has done nothing to merit that abuse beyond showing a certain independence of mind and an inclination to follow the dictates of conscience before party. He has been accused of ambition. It is certain that if he had been less honest in his political career and less straightforward, he might have risen more quickly to supreme power. But though doubtless ambitious, and what sin is there in that, he has known how to subordinate his ambition to the dictates of his conscience in all matters, which, according to his lights, he believes affects the welfare of society. He sees clearly now what the high and dignified Duke of Devonsmere, 
old Lord Muddlehead, Lord Do-Nothing, and their colleagues do not see in the least. He sees that Gloria Delara, though she may have many an enemy in the country, is yet a power which must not be despised. Lord Pandolf has no sympathy with her cause or her teachings, but that is no reason why he should ignore the fact that there are thousands who have, and who are prepared to support her. Mr. Mayhew shakes his head. We have said he is an obstinate man, and obstinacy is more or less a sign of weakness. "'No, no,' he says hastily, "'I think it is you, Chertsey, who overrate her power. Of course she has a few friends, but not many. I always said, Destrangeism is ephemeral. You will see how quickly the storm she has raised will become subdued. I have not the slightest doubt on that score. But for the sake of law and order we must strain every nerve to arrest both her and Lady Flora. It is a terrible business, but murder cannot go unpunished, that is very clear." Lord Pandolf laughs, as he glances at the Duke, who is sprawling back in his chair with his legs stretched out. Mr. Mayhew's remarks appear to him ridiculous. "'Depend upon it,' he exclaims again, "'that you are utterly underrating her power. We know enough of Hector de Strange to be pretty well certain that Gloria Delara will not remain inactive. You talk of your detectives and police, but let me remind you that there are scattered throughout the country those companies of women volunteers, whom she shall call out at any moment. Surely you do not underrate their power for mischief." But Mr. Mayhew does, and so do the rest of the Cabinet, including the Duke of Devonsmere. This latter is a bitter opponent of Gloria Delara's advocacy for woman's freedom. He is quite convinced that the sex is hopelessly inferior to his own, and regards their emancipation with the same horror as did the South in the American Civil War when the North upheld the abolition of slavery. "'I think we are straying wide of the mark, Chertsey,' he observes rather gruffly. "'The policy we have got to decide on is how the riotous crowds that are paralyzing public freedom are to be suppressed. There is no doubt that for the moment this adventuress has a strong party in her favor, but I think, with Mayhew, that all sympathy with her will quickly subside, especially if the government show a bold and determined front to the mutineers. The most strenuous efforts must be made to arrest those two women, and so put an end to the mutiny which they have provoked. I consider, therefore, that the military ought to be employed to assist the police, and I have little doubt that in very short time order will be restored. Do you all think with me?" The Eleventh Satellites do, but not the Independent Planet. Lord Pandolf does not agree, and says so plainly. He thinks it will be madness to employ the military, and thus provoke civil brawls, and perhaps civil war he cannot make himself responsible for such a state of things. "'I am very sorry,' he says gravely, "'but I am quite unable to fall in with such a policy, which, if pursued, I believe will entail lamentable results. Do your best, if you think it possible, to arrest the leaders of this movement by means of detectives and police, but for goodness' sake keep the soldiers out of the fray. However, if you persist, I can make way for a fresh secretary for India. I can resign." "'That is an old game with you,' remarks the Duke dryly. "'It will not be the first time you have left your colleagues in the lurch.' 
Say rather, not the first time that I have refused to stifle conscience for the sake of office, or to make over my honest opinion to the care of others," answers Lord Pandolf somewhat hotly, nettled no doubt by the Duke's unfair remark. "'However,' he continues quietly, "'I have no wish to mar the unanimity of these proceedings, and will withdraw. My reasons for resignation can be fully explained in the proper place.' There is a significant ring in his voice which cannot be mistaken. The Duke knows perfectly well that with Lord Pandolf out of his cabinet, this excellent clique will be little less than a group of mechanical dolls. To lose Lord Pandolf means discredit to his ministry, and a considerable loss of confidence outside it. He feels he must temporize. "'Really, Chertsey, I don't understand what you want,' he observes impatiently. A short while ago you were making fun of the detective force, and assuring us we had underrated Gloria Dolores' power. Now that I propose to take decisive measure to arrest that power, you object to them. Will you propose a policy yourself?' "'Well, I will, as you invite me to do so,' answers Lord Pandolf with a smile. "'But I do not suppose you will adopt it. However, here is my opinion.' I am not in sympathy with Gloria Dolores' desires, but I fully recognize that her doctrines are accepted by thousands. I am not likely to forget that it was she who raised the Hall of Liberty, who drilled into efficiency a large woman volunteer force, and who has worked her way into the affections of vast numbers of the working classes. Having read the evidence at her trial, I am extremely dissatisfied with the verdict, while in regard to the death of the policeman in the prison van, I do not look upon Lady Flora's act as murder. We are assured by members of the police force that she fired through the lock of the van, only after giving the policeman full warning of her intention to do so. She naturally supposed he had lain down as she bade him, and though his death is most grievous, really she cannot be accused of murder. Looking at matters in this light, I think the wisest thing the present government can do is to appeal to the country to decide the question revoke the warrant against Lady Flora, and offer Gloria Delara a fresh trial. Such a policy may be out of the way, but we must not forget that we are now facing a state of affairs unparalleled in the world's history. For my part, I cannot take the responsibility of deciding for the country. It is the country which should be appealed to, and allowed to decide for itself." He has spoken as befits a statesman who is able and willing to look upon the people as the proper tribunal to decide the policy to be pursued. But the Duke of Devonsmere, unlike Lord Pandolf, has never and will never be able to quit his aristocratic perch in order to descend to the people's level. He is willing to give them a policy and ask them to accept it, but he cannot realize that the masses are able to produce one for themselves. It is not wonderful that he thinks as he does for he is not, and never has been, in touch with the people. Like Mr. Mayhew, he shakes his head. "'Your proposal is simple madness, Chertsey. I, for one, cannot fall in with it.' He looks sternly at the eleven satellites who are regarding him. They thoroughly understand that look. "'Nor we,' they murmur deferentially, aping the abject acquiescence of poor old Lord Muddlehead. Again Lord Pandolf laughs. Words would not measure the contemptuous ring that there is in that laugh. And you will pardon me if I say that I think your proposal madness also. 
I cannot agree to it, and it is best I should resign," he says quietly. "'Very well,' answers the Duke coldly. "'As you are determined, so be it, Chertsey.' Lord Pandolf rises. He accepts his congé willingly. It has been gall and wormwood to work with such colleagues as these. He is out of place, and he feels it. He knows that he ought to be where the Duke is sitting. Undoubtedly, he ought. Then, it is understood, I shall tender my resignation without any delay, so that you will be able to nominate my successor. This being so, it is better I should retire at once. Good morning, Devonsmere." And without deigning recognition of the eleven satellites, Lord Pandolf leaves the room. "'Really, Chertsey is about the most insufferable fellow to deal with I have ever known,' murmurs Lord Hankney, the Minister for Agriculture, adjusting his eyeglass. We shall do much better without him, Devonsmere." So they sit on in council, these strange twelve, a ministry misrepresentative of the people. The policy against which Lord Pandolf warned them, they agree to adopt. The military is to be ordered out, a direct incentive to civil war, while the warrants for the arrest of Gloria Delara and Lady Flora Desmond are to remain in force. It is the old story, merely history repeating itself, of a group of men omitting to consult the people whose paid servants they are, before acting. Office, unfortunately nowadays, is too much considered as the happy hunting-ground of a clique or class, to the exclusion of the people's acknowledged representatives. So the wrong men step in and take upon themselves responsibilities for which they are totally disqualified and unfitted, and thus are mistakes committed for which those who pay the taxes have to suffer. The case in point is a good one. Such a decision would never have been come to had the Duke of Devonsmere's cabinet contained some of the people's representatives. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven.